Have you ever been rejected, I wonder? I probably don't even need to ask that question, but I suspect that most of us have at one time or another. Wanting to try to do good for somebody else, maybe we're trying to show them something or tell them something that we think is important and truthful, and yet they shut us down. Well, that happened to me a few years ago. I was writing a weekly column in our local newspaper at the time, and I wrote an opinion piece, not naming any names. I said, on a soccer field not more than a million miles from here, this thing happened, and then I described that thing. Didn't mention anybody. Didn't even mention the name of the team of that soccer player. But apparently people figured out who I was talking about because I was talking about somebody that was yelling and screaming at these poor six- and seven-year-old little boys as though the soccer coach must have thought that they were professionals, you know, and they needed to excel. And they were barely able to figure out how to keep from looking like a swarm of bees just going after the ball together. Well, apparently one of the parents on that particular team took offense at my pointing out that that behavior was, in my opinion, a little over the top. Because after the next game, when my son was playing and the game was completely finished, this guy motioned me over, and it was a fellow that I had met around town, and I knew him. I had shopped in his uh, business. And in the wonderful Midwestern style, we smile the whole time we're reaming somebody up. It's a strange thing that happens. I mean, if you were to go to New York, it would be totally different, but this is the Midwest. And so he was just reaming me out, but he was smiling. So if anybody was 30 yards away looking at us, they would think we're having a very pleasant conversation. And what he was really saying was, I don't have any respect for you anymore. And you couldn't even pay me to read those articles in the newspaper. In fact, I'm thinking about canceling my subscription. Have a good day. And he walks up. And all I could say was, well... Well, I mean, what do you say about that? But I was just trying to point out in a way that hopefully was humorous enough and yet accurate enough that maybe somebody would start to become a little more self-aware. Funny thing about that story, this is the epilogue that doesn't really go with the sermon, but you need to know how that turned out. Seven years later, I bumped into that guy. I've told this story before. and It was the actual coach. And they were getting ready to move to another town. The son had found a box full of VHS tapes. He was playing one of them. He said, Dad, you got to come see this. He looked at himself, and he was yelling and screaming at the boys. And I bumped to him at the coffee shop in town, and he said, i got to tell you, you had every right to write that article. <laughs> what you said was exactly true, and I needed to learn that I had an anger problem, and I had to learn how to ratchet that back. And I thought, wait a minute, can you say that on tape, please? <laughs> Nobody ever says that out loud in front of a bunch of people on a soccer field. But I was rejected, at least at first. And the reason I bring that up is because clearly there were times when Jesus, even though he was the best truth teller of all, got rejected. And in this particular passage in Mark chapter 6, we can see that he was rejected and he had the home field advantage. This was his hometown. This is where we're going to see him getting rejected. So we're going to unpack just six verses today because there's so much richness in that passage that we want to just peel it apart and see all the good things that it has for us. Because for one thing, if we who believe that we have something that's worth sharing with others, namely the gospel, we want to find out what's the most effective way to do that. And we know that there's going to be some rejection along the way. Of course there is. Jesus has promised that, but we also want to try to look for the right opportunities in the right places and the right tone to be able to share that truth so that one day, hopefully, the truth will sink in and people will be excited about the truth that we're sharing with them. So let's read the first six verses of Mark chapter 6, 
And uh, then we'll dive into it and see if we can unpack it. Jesus left that part of the country and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. The next Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue. And many who heard him were amazed. They asked, where did he get all this wisdom and the power to perform such miracles? And then they scoffed. He is just a carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James, Joseph or Joseph, Judas and Simon. And his sisters live right here among us. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Then Jesus told them, A prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his relatives and his own family. And because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles among them except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. May the Lord enlighten us and speak to us personally through his Holy Spirit as we look into his word together. Let's look at these six verses. Nazareth. Nazareth. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? That was his hometown because he grew up there. But we know from the Christmas stories that he wasn't born there. I'll give you a hint. Oh, little town of... You got it. That was the birthplace, of course, but then Nazareth was his growing up years, the formative years, and he grew up there before launching into his itinerant ministry, much of which happened, as I pointed out, the northwestern quadrant of the Sea of Galilee, the lake, Lake Gennesaret, and yet he was all over Israel. Now, Israel is not a huge country, so everything could be accessible, very much of it on foot, as Joy and I discovered, with very tired legs. And yet they could travel from town to town, and so Nazareth was where he grew up, and it's not a terribly long journey to get to Jerusalem and Capernaum and other places where we see these things happening in the New Testament. Well, you would think that if he was coming back home after doing all the wonderful things so far that we have seen him doing, the miracles, the teachings, the crowds following him, that he would have a brass band playing, he would have the mayor with the key to the city ready to meet him on a podium, they would have bunting on a stage set up for him. That's not the kind of welcome that Jesus received when he went back to Nazareth. People in Nazareth do know Jesus, but they're hearing about the kind of Jesus that's rumored, and it's the rumors that had been spreading because of some of the things happening in other locations. And they would be kind of like, miracle worker? I don't think so. This is a, a local boy, but it's not a local boy done good. This is just a local boy. It's a local boy who's in a local family, and his brothers and sisters are right here among us. We don't think so. So, so far, we can see this juxtaposition between how certain people were responding to Jesus and how his hometown crowd and his own family are responding to him. I need to put in an apologetics moment right here because I like to insert these things where they are appropriate, and this is one of those places. If you were to look at some of the... Uh, Certain sites on the internet, you would find that there's kind of a pushback against certain things, especially by so-called archaeologists. And there's a lot of made-up stuff out there on the internet, i got to tell you. But some liberal scholars and some websites have said that they think the Gospels were written at least two centuries after Jesus was alive. I've pointed out before that that's not the case, that we have very eyewitness evidence and it was written very, very close to the original events, so we can trust it. This is a trustworthy source. But they also believe that Nazareth probably didn't even exist as a city until later when the Gospels were actually written. 
And one guy in particular wrote a book about it. And, you know, when you write a book about it, well, everybody thinks you must be an expert. And he was basing some of his decisions and some of his conclusions on certain shards and fragments of pottery, which he says, oh, no, these have got to be in the Byzantine era. They could not have possibly been all the way back here. But there's another expert on pottery who would talk about that sort of thing. And I'm paraphrasing for him because I don't want to go into all the technical difficulties, but he said, that's bunk. <laughs> if he knew his pottery, he would understand that Nazareth definitely existed as a small village. It wasn't a huge city, but it did exist, and everything that he's talking about just doesn't make sense. Well, the name of the book was The Myth of Nazareth, The Invented Town of Jesus. And so, because one pastor that I heard of said, uh, I'm, I'm younger, this pastor said, and he said, so I was about 12, 13 years old when that book came out. And there were certain things that were happening around then that people were trying to start pushing out there into the world. And he said, even I as a 12-year-old would start to say, well, that doesn't make much sense. One of those things was that Dan Rather, let me see if it was the, the right guy that I had, had put out a, a big book about that time. And it became something that was out on CDs and DVDs. And he did stuff in special long-term specials on uh, Sunday nights, I think it was, for several weeks in a row. And it was called in search of the real Jesus or something like that. Well, I got to tell you, he wasn't searching for the real Jesus. He was searching for greater viewership. And one of the things that this guy had said was, um, there are certain discrepancies that we need to be looking into. And one of them is that Jesus was considered a carpenter in one gospel and the son of a carpenter in another, car uh, another gospel. And this younger pastor that I was talking about, this colleague, had said, even as a 12-year-old, I could look at that and say, well, Dan... Most of the people were taught by their parents into the family business, so he could be both the son of a carpenter and a carpenter. That's kind of the way it worked. He didn't go to the Nazareth school of carpentry. You know, he learned from his daddy. So there were things like that. And some of the information that you'll find about that can be found on these two websites, atheist.org, if that gives you any clue, and jesusneverexisted.com. So I would like to say, I want to go on record as saying that I don't think you're going to get strong, solid, biblical historicity on these two websites. So what you need to know is you can find a lot of reputable scholarship out there, but you have to know where to look. And certain sites will use very unbiblical sources and sometimes very unhistoric and unarchaeologic sources to try to prove their points because they have an axe to grind. I hope you also know this. Don't believe everything you read on the internet just because there's a photo with a quote next to it. <laughs> so says, allegedly, Abraham Lincoln. Oh, goodness. Well, Jesus started teaching in the synagogues. We see that in Mark, that he was going from synagogue to synagogue. That was the appropriate and expected place for spiritual discussions to take place. Said that in verse 2, Mark 6. The next Sabbath he began teaching in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed, and they asked, where did he? The reason I'm emphasizing he is because the way they were thinking about him, Jesus. Where did he, this guy who has this family that's local, this guy that we have known his mom and his brothers and sisters for all these years, where did he get this kind of wisdom? Meaning, I think, where did he get all the rumors that are coming to us? Is this the same guy? They were clearly conflicted in what they were thinking about Jesus based on what we see just in these few verses. Well, Joy and I found out when we were in Israel that the temple and the synagogue, two very different places. The temple, of course, is this huge space 
And it was considered, I guess if you want to think just strictly in terms of scale and size, think of it as sort of a spiritual convention center. That's where big annual things were happening. They would do the sacrifices there. A lot of people would travel in from miles around and come for these special feasts and whatnot. So that's the temple. And I was sort of mistaking my childhood experience for thinking that there should be church-sized buildings in all these different towns. And that was not the case at all. That was a false assumption on my part, and we got to actually see a few things, including that huge, wonderful temple. It was very large, much larger than the local synagogues. And the two types of buildings had two very different purposes. Uh, the synagogue in Magdala is a place that we got to visit, and that was really cool. That was one of my favorite places because they had been excavating over there. There was a Catholic retreat center, and somebody was digging, getting ready to, to dig a footer for some of the motel-like rooms that would house people coming on retreats there, and they bumped into something, and it was that thing right in the middle where people would put their scrolls, and they realized that there was a synagogue right there on the property. So then they started excavating it, and we got to look at that. You can see the wonderful mosaics in the floor, still vibrant today. It's incredible how well-preserved some of those are for as old as they are. And this was very typical of the size synagogue that would be in these smaller towns, Capernaum, Bethsaida, uh, Magdala, all these places would have little synagogues like that. And we found out that uh, Mary of Magdala was from that town because Mary Magdalene was basically like saying Mary of Magdalene. It would be like me saying Cali Milanese, you know, because he's Cali of Milan. Uh, but that was Magdala. And so we had a lot of great artifacts that were there. We also found out that literally just across the street within a very short distance, there had been a fish market. They could find that through archaeology, and they found lots of coins that would probably have been exchanged for the fish that they were buying there. It really helped center us, and it turned the black and white words of the Scripture into living color as we pictured the people bustling around in this very busy area and having this local gathering place called the synagogue. We also got to go inside a replica in Nazareth Village. And this is sponsored by a bunch of people who want to put you back in first century AD. And it's in Nazareth. And we got to go into this place so that they would have docents to show you what first century AD things were like. And you got to experience life. There were people who were showing you how to turn sheep's wool into clothing. There was a carpenter using the same material that Joseph would have been teaching Jesus about because he was both the carpenter and the carpenter's son. All that stuff was happening in Nazareth Village. It was fantastic. We learned so much that just really made the New Testament come alive. And we found out through our docent that the average synagogue, which looked probably very much like this in many of those places, was about the same amount of space that we're sitting in right here today. In fact, it would not have been as large a room, so you'd have to take away the margins of all that extra space we can see around us. But from where our seats are right here, that's about how big these synagogues were. These were smaller villages, and you could seat the people on those kind of risers there that were out of stone, so that you could get probably around 100 people in there. Makes me wonder if perhaps, since 80 or so percent of the churches, evangelical churches in the United States today, are around 100 people or less, Maybe there are some good reasons. Maybe that's a biblical concept because that's enough uh, size for people to really get to know each other and have a community of faith, which means that we need to start more smaller churches rather than just building mega churches. Just a thought. Well, on the Sabbath, the synagogue was a place that they would clearly have worship time. So they would have the reading of the scrolls, listening to rabbinic teaching, but they also met on the second and fifth days of the week for different styles of worship. 
But in the non-worship times, this was like a community center. We found out that that was open to people coming and having announcements for the whole community. The whole village would show up. Women were allowed to come in at those times. It was like a community center. I didn't know that. But when they did meet for the Sabbath, let me give you their typical order of service. Now, I grew up in a Baptist church, and you could almost just grab your bulletin from last week, scratch out the hymn number, put today's hymn numbers, and it would almost always be the same order of worship. Can I get an amen? Because <laughs> if you do something three weeks in a row, it becomes holy writ, and you have to keep doing it that way. And that was similar to what they were doing there. This is a typical order of worship on the Sabbath, which for them started on Friday night, of course, and go into Saturday. They would have a statement of faith read. I'm using our modern terms for that. That would be like the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. Then they would have a scripture reading. That would be a scroll that would be put out, and the rabbi would read that, whoever that teacher was. And then they would have an interpretation. And when I first saw interpretation, I'm thinking like a sermon, so they could interpret the scripture as to what it means to them, but it was a linguistic interpretation, not the kind of interpreta inter interpretation like we would have a hermeneutical interpretation. There would be, for example, people from other towns, they would speak different dialects, or maybe they'd have Aramaic, which was very common. So the Hebrew would be read, and then somebody else would come in, basically just do from Hebrew to Aramaic interpretation so that those who were there could have heard the word properly. That was that interpretation. And then they would have the address. And this kind of reminds me a little bit of the modern Quaker movement, where they would have people, and anybody could stand and speak as long as they were qualified as sort of an elder. They would have some experience in the Word. They would be a wise person, and they would be allowed to stand and speak. So it wasn't always just the same preacher like we have in most of our churches today. And because Jesus was a teacher, he had been an itinerant preacher and teacher in different locations, including synagogues, and because he had a following of disciples... Jesus was qualified, which is why on this time, he's actually able to come into his hometown and speak in the synagogue. That's what allowed him to do that on the Sabbath. We see other things about that in the New Testament from Paul and Apollos. They would go to the synagogues first. There became a time later on when, of course, the Christians became more persecuted, and they kind of got pushed out of the synagogues, and they had to go elsewhere. But for now, in these early phases of the early church, and as Jesus was starting to establish uh, news about the kingdom that he was coming to, uh, to put forth, that's what would happen. The synagogue was the place. Well, they were places for discussion, and that brings a good question for us today. What is a good expected and appropriate place for spiritual discussions in America? I would propose that anywhere people are receptive is a good place. Uh, I like coffee shops because I think they're very receptive, especially when they had some caffeine, and I really like coffee. But I do that. I, I make a lot of meetings out in coffee shops because it seems like that's kind of the new public square, so to speak. And I've had some ricochet evangelism things happening at times because I would be speaking with other people in a coffee shop about spiritual matters, and somebody else would overhear that, and they might have a question as well. I've had that happen with a guy in a local coffee shop. So here we have Jesus coming to his hometown in Nazareth. He's qualified. He's in the public square. He comes to the synagogue. There are a lot of people that if you try to approach them today, they would say, this is not the appropriate place. In fact, some of the older folks would say, no place is an appropriate place. Don't talk politics or religion, which in my opinion is funny because those are probably two of the most important things you could ever talk about. <laughs> and yet we would prefer not to do that, especially around Thanksgiving. And uh, so where can we do that? Well, I've noticed that there are certain schools, high schools and colleges, where there are actually debate classes 
That would be a good place to open that up. Perhaps you could have a mock debate and talk about spiritual matters. There are certain places that would probably try to nix that, but others that are more open to that. Comparative religion classes, they still do offer that in colleges and sometimes in high school. Uh, anytime, anytime there's a communications-oriented class, if you can get the professor's buy-in, that's not a bad place to say, I would like to do my communication speech on this subject and talk about some of the differences of opinion. So those are places that I think that we as evangelicals need to start thinking outside the box of our local, quote, synagogue to say, where else can we actually engage people in thinking about spiritual matters? I think we can make a difference with that. I do recall that somebody actually used the internet fairly effectively because we know that everybody loves to argue over the internet. And she had a blog. She considered herself probably an agnostic. She said, I'm not sure whether to call myself an atheist or an agnostic, but I think there's enough question marks in my own mind that I would probably label myself an agnostic. And so in her blog, she started asking good questions. And what she noticed was that the anti-Christian group were hateful, and vindictive and cruel and crude and they used lots of foul language and they were attacking and just filled with hate speech. Whereas most, not all, most of the Christians who were responding to her questions were loving and gracious and kind and they had links to other articles to back up the kinds of uh, material that they were sharing with her to say, I actually have evidence for this, let me show you this. And so over time, she started noticing a big difference. And she said, you know, which of these two worldviews would I rather like, like to associate myself with? She said, I think I would much rather like to associate myself with people who are loving and kind and gracious and patient. And so then she started actually looking into the evidence that these people were supplying. And she, long story short, became a believer. She's now still using the Internet, but she's using it to help other people try to come on board with those ideas that led her to faith in Christ. You will see Jesus using some amazing concepts in his early teaching times. And we're going to see a little bit later, not too far into the future here in Mark's gospel, where he'll talk about that concept of shaking the dust off of your feet when somebody is rejecting your message. That would be kind of like washing your hands of responsibility, saying, I've given you the opportunity. I'm sharing something great with you. But if you reject it, then that's on you. Essentially, So we're going to see that in a bit. But right now, he's still able to go from synagogue to synagogue. So meanwhile, back to Nazareth and the synagogue. When Joy and I were in that replica synagogue in Magdala, uh, our docent asked somebody from our tour group to come up and read from the scroll, which he had already opened up to a specific passage. And this was what our group member read. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. And some of us were thinking, that sounds pretty familiar. And many of you might be thinking, that's kind of familiar. Where else have I heard that? Well, you might have heard that from another passage that was written about 700 years before Jesus came to Nazareth and read that in the synagogue. It was written by Isaiah. And Luke 4, 20 and 21 contains some things that are helpful for us here too. It says, he rolled up the scroll at the time he read that, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everybody in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began saying to them, today... 
this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Ah, so where specifically did this reading happen? Well, in Nazareth. We have to look back at Luke's gospel to find that because we back up to just after Jesus had been tested by the devil in the wilderness. And then in verse 14 in Luke 4, it says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him, at least for a minute. (laughs) And then he went to Nazareth, uh where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. So that's corroborating what happened and why maybe some people took offense at him because of what he said at the closing of that reading when he said, today, this specific passage has been fulfilled in your presence. So people's responses, they were varied. They were saying, where does this guy get his wisdom? And how did he get the power to do such miracles? Now, we have to ask, what miracles is he talking about? Because he had just said, I couldn't do many miracles there because of their unbelief. But Mark does says, does, says, does say that you should use proper syntax and grammar. He said that he was able to do a few things and to heal a few folks while he was there. So maybe they were referring to that, or maybe, and I think this is more likely, they were referring to those other miracles that they had been rumored about, the buzz from everybody that had been coming into them from outside of Nazareth. Well, why so many rejections? Let's look at a couple of these things because it's important. They had known him as, quote, the carpenter. That was a nothing job. That was low on the totem pole socially. Carpenters weren't known for becoming great rabbis or teachers. So for them, it would have been like, eh, yeah, we got a carpenter, we got a plumber, we got a FedEx delivery guy. Why is he doing all these miracles? Is he the guy they're talking about? Is he the rumored guy? And also, he was just Mary's kid. A couple of reasons why we think that might mean something different. For one thing, you might remember the Christmas story, where suddenly the angel appears to Mary and Joseph, and you know, you're going to be with child, and oh, by the way, it's not going to be from Joseph, you're betrothed. Could it be that they were sort of rumoring about that and saying, yeah, there's some question about the parentage going on here, so maybe it was Mary's kid that way. I don't really think that they were going that direction with it because of the surrounding text and context here. I really think that that just means it's Mary's kid. It's a local. Why would they say Mary and refer to him as Mary's child rather than Joseph's? Because normally they would talk about the father's lineage. Most believe that Joseph had probably died by then. There were several other things that happened, and we don't see Joseph present there, including the fact that the parents, not too long ago, we hit it about three, four weeks ago, had gone to where Jesus was in Mark chapter 2. He'd been teaching the parents, or Mary and some of his own siblings got there and said, we need to take you out. Why? Because they thought he had, quote, lost his mind. They were worried about his mental state at that point. So there's probably just saying, this is Mary's kid. He's just a guy from our local town. And also they're saying, his family is with us, or his sisters reside right here in Nazareth as well, in verse 3. In the study of literature, there's a thing, I like this, it's called the criterion of embarrassment. Now my children thought that that was a measuring scale for how embarrassing their father was in public when they were growing up, but that's not what this refers to. This is about literary criticism, because there's a a a school of people that trying to criticize literature, ancient literature, especially the Bible. And the criterion of embarrassment basically says, this account is likely true 
Because if somebody wanted to put forth something that was really make them look good, paint them in a really good light, they would not include this in this narrative. So in other words, this thing is pretty stinky about this guy. Why would he put it in if it didn't really happen that way? And so they think that because of the criterion of embarrassment, that for them to have this kind of rejection and for his own siblings not to yet believe, they would think it's probably true. Mark is just putting it out there for what really happened. And also, the people in their own minds had already started to pick up on that rejection because they knew the family rejected him as well. So this is about where I'm going to need to stop for today, but I want to give one good solid application for us to think about, and we're going to look at a few other applications next week. Sometimes we hear a truth, and because the source of that truth is so familiar to us, we find ways to discount it and ignore it. It just happens that way. I remember growing up and being a preteen and up into my teen years, my parents would tell me things, and they would tell me sometimes over and over again, and they would tell it so often that you just kind of learn to shut them out. And then some younger person, like a youth minister in a church, would start to say something, and I would think, wow, that's brilliant. That's a great truth. And I would go home and tell my parents, you know, what this youth minister had said, and they would give each other that look. Like, yeah, haven't we been telling him that all this time? But it came from somebody else, and so it's got to be great now. I think that happens sometimes, and sometimes it's easy for us to hear truth over and over again until we just kind of tune it out. It becomes rote. It's also good for us to recognize that we have a tendency to want to block out certain things because we know we're going to have to change if we absorb that truth. That's a bent. I think it's the flesh in us. It's that sinful nature that's always going to be at war, trying to pull us away from the truth so that we'll want to buy into some other voices that are out there that are not based on God's truth. So it's tough, but it's necessary for us to ask, do I really understand the true Jesus? Am I willing to look into Scripture and find the real Jesus and who he is and what he's like in my life? I posted this quote not too long ago, about a week ago, on our church Facebook page. It's from E. Stanley Jones. When we say we begin with God, we begin with our idea of God, and our idea of God is not God. Instead, we ought to begin with God's idea of God, and God's idea of God is Christ. And what that means is that when it comes to the Gospels, if we're going to see what God is really like, we need to follow Jesus' story all the way to its conclusion, and we get to see God so much more clearly because he said, I and the Father are one. For us to know that God's heart is so loving that he would give himself up, in this case, in the incarnate Christ, God the Son, for our sins, that's the God we know. And there's a lot of distortion. We're all having to overcome all kinds of distortion about the real God in our world today. And sadly, I suspect that there are some people in this world that are still just kind of buying into whatever the latest craze might happen to be rather than looking into what the real Jesus is like. So that's where our job comes in. We get to live our lives in such a way that they would say, why is that person so hopeful in the midst of all the craziness that's going on? And then, as First Peter 3.15 would say, we need to have a ready answer for that. And we would do so with gentleness and respect, compassion, for those people who need to know the real Jesus. Sometimes we get just enough of the real thing that it's a little bit like an inoculation. It just makes us immune to the real thing. 
And some people have an inoculation of Christianity, and they need to know Christ, because that's how we get to know the real Christianity and the real God. That's why I think what we need more than anything else is to keep diving into Scripture, keep looking to see the real Jesus, and allow Him, through His Holy Spirit, to transform our lives. I pray that that's what's going to happen as we continue looking into Mark's gospel together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's so good to know that you're so patient because things that are happening today in 2022 are just exactly the same way they were happening back when you were walking the earth. And although there will be rejection for those who are trying to share Christ, we understand that we still need to be truth-tellers. We need to be loving, compassionate truth-tellers, but we do need to tell the truth. And we need to point people to the real Jesus. Because as we get more and more of you into our lives, we get to know you so much better, and we know the real God. Thank you for doing that through your word. And thank you for a community of faith in which we get to ask tough questions and banter them around and look into your word and allow your Holy Spirit to continue revealing truth to us because you're really good at it. And I pray that we'll be open, receptive learners as we continue to gain more and more of that truth. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.